The comedian Nate Bargatze has a joke um, about the silent treatment, and he's kind of like, all of us are just like born knowing the silent treatment, right? Like when we get mad at somebody, we just quit talking to them, and he jokes like if at home it's kind of awkward because you have to walk down a small hallway and just like pretend that that person isn't in that same small hallway with you, right? And in this joke, he, uh, he talks about the movie The Sixth Sense, Um, It came out in 1999, and he says, when we watched it for the first time, none of us knew the main character was dead. Like, none of us knew. That was the big surprise at the end of the movie. Um, It's a pretty big spoiler if you haven't seen it, but again, (laughs) again, he says it came out in 1999, so it's not like you're going to hit Blockbuster on your way home to, uh, to see that. We watched the movie and we just thought that his wife wasn't talking to him for like an entire year, he said. He said, that made more sense to us than him being dead. <laughs> He's like, he says, uh, he says, when I watched it, I was like, it's not like they show him dying. And he's like, no, right at the beginning of the movie, he gets shot with a gun. They're like, clearly he's dead. But still, we watch it for like two hours thinking, this is a movie about marriage. I know what he's going through, right? It's pretty common for an author or a a writer to share something at the end of a piece that if we knew that, the entire piece of what we had just read or watched, we would have viewed it all with a different lens. In the last chapter of James that we'll go over today, in James chapter five, uh, James reveals two new, fresh perspectives that really give us a lens that we could almost go back and look at the whole book through these two things. If we went back and reread the letter, our perspective on everything else James had set up to this point would change. And so uh, this is our last week of the sermon series uh, that we're calling Don't Be Fake. We've been in a chapter of James uh, every week of this sermon series. Week one was called Don't Be Misled. Week two was called Don't Show Favoritism. If you missed uh, any of these, they're worth going back to watch. But uh, my favorite, I know I talked to some friends, was Don't Show Favoritism. Week three, we talked about Don't Say It. Uh, Week four, we talked about Don't Be Jealous. And today, the message is called Don't Do It Alone. Uh, At the the time James was writing this letter, uh, one of the goals of many people, especially in the uh, middle or upper class would have been the same goal as many people now, to obtain power and resources for themselves, to get more wealth and to get more status for them, to be more rich, to get further ahead, to accumulate for themselves, even if it came at the expense of the poor and the powerless. There's so many problems with that goal. Uh, we could go into a lot of problems, but just to name one is, is it leads to loneliness. If your goal is to get yourself ahead, that means no others are with you or very few others are with you. Uh, 70% of us feel alone for a lot of reasons, but we don't really need another thing helping us feel alone. And so James starts chapter five talking directly to the rich. Here's what he says. If you want to follow along, we're in James 5, 1. He says, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. 
Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived in earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. The first, both of the fresh perspectives on the entire book of James are, are revealed here. The first uh, that we'll point out is verse six. James says, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. They have condemned the righteous one and killed him. They are responsible for the death of Jesus. Suddenly we realize who the rich that James is talking to really actually are. Uh, Jane, uh, the rich, and, and most certainly we realize where James is writing this letter and when James is writing this letter. James is writing this letter uh, specifically opposing those who killed Jesus for their selfish ways. The rich are the Jerusalem elite, the religious leaders and the chief priests, and their attitude towards God was purely practical. They did what was required of them in the temple, running festivals and liturgies, but really it was just a way for them to stay in a position of power. And so James was in line with Jesus here because Jesus cleansed the temple. And when Jesus cleansed the temple, the leaders of the temple, the rich elites reacted to the, provocation, to the provoking exactly how we would expect them to react. They said, Jesus must be eliminated. But you can't eliminate Jesus, right? God raised him from the dead. And when Jesus was resurrected, even his own family members believed that he was God. Up to that point, they had been skeptical, but at this point, they knew he was the Messiah. Even James, at this point, knew Jesus was the Messiah. One pastor would say, what would it take for you to think that your own brother is Lord. Probably not something you're gonna default to, right? And James was like, I think my brother's actually just crazy, and then he resurrected, and James changed his mind. So like Jesus himself, James points his finger at economic oppression. You shouldn't hoard, and you should treat others fairly. Holding back the wages of day laborers so you can earn a little interest comes at a great expense to them. And that's not how we're going to do it. And so the first fresh perspective that we get on the entire book is this, that James is specifically opposing those who killed Jesus for their selfish ways. The other fresh perspective that James reveals to us here in these first six verses is a couple of verses earlier in verse three. He says, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. It's kind of interesting, he says, in the last days. It's almost prophetic. And this too is based on what James believed about Jesus. James believed that with Jesus, a brand new world had begun. That Jesus had launched God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And in this new world, one of the most inappropriate things you can do is store up riches for yourself. 
God is turning everything upside down here. He's exalting the poor and the humble, and he's bringing the powerful and the rich crashing down. Again, like Mandy has said throughout this series, James is in line with Jesus here, so often saying so many similar things to what Jesus said. Jesus would say uh, in Matthew 6, Jesus would say, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. In the early church, uh, after Jesus started this movement, the poorest were treated no different than the wealthy. And as the church would get off track through church history, uh, James's words would help us get back on track. Uh, in the spirit of James, uh, at one point in church history, it was possible for you and your family to purchase a pew. So if you wanted the front row pew, which nobody wants anymore, I guess, but... Uh, <laughs> If your family wanted the front pew for your family and you were wealthy, you could have the front pew. But uh, at some point, the Methodist church was like, that's not how we're going to do it. That's not how this kingdom works. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we actually need to follow Jesus in this way. We need to take a look, an honest look at the global economy and see where money is flowing one direction, similar to how it was at this time in the ancient Judean economy, if money is only flowing one direction, it comes at expense to people. The second fresh perspective here is that James believed these were the last days because Jesus was ushering in a new kingdom. It was being launched on earth as in heaven. And so again, if you want to go back through the sermon series or go back through the book of James, this first six verses of chapter five give us a new lens, right? First, they say, they tell us that James is specifically opposing those who killed Jesus for their selfish ways. And second, that James believed these were the last days because through Jesus, a new kingdom was being launched on earth as in, as in heaven. If it seemed like the first four books of James were just a bunch of random rules, this reveals the heart of James of why he thinks these things are important. Uh, this is the first section of James chapter 5. The middle section, if you divided James 5 into three sections, uh, the middle section I'm just going to summarize. And, uh, we're not going to read it, but uh, you can read it. Uh, if I were to summarize it, I would say this. Patience is one of the key aspects of the Spirit's work in our lives. Our frantic society has done its best to eliminate the need for patience. Uh, that makes it even more important that we as Christians practice it. James has a good example. He says, think of a farmer. They prepare the land and they plant the seed and they don't expect the crop to just, prop up, to just pop up. That's the kind of patience we should have. Patience forces us to move off of our own schedule and onto someone else's schedule or onto God's schedule or onto just a schedule we can't control. Patience is one of the key aspects of the Spirit working in our lives. Uh, picking up James's word uh, in verse 13, James says this, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. 
Just a couple verses later, James says this, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from their error, their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Someone who has no idea of God, prayer is at best an odd superstition that we have, and at worst, it's self-deception. But James encourages us to pray, whether it be in times of trouble, uh, whether it be times that we're happy, or times that we're sick, and especially if we're going through one of the harder times, but really any of the times, um, we should lean on each other in prayer. James mentions uh, the word church here. He says, let them call the elders of the church to pray over them. Uh, the word church is ecclesia. This is, he mentions the word church, the gathering of people with Christ. Again, an echo of Jesus. Jesus would say, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, uh, a community bound together by Christ, by Jesus, as Ashley was talking about, uh, we had the life group launch on Wednesday night. A lot of you were here um, for the life group launch. And one of the things Pastor Mandy shared that night is one of the goals of life groups is just to have a system that cares for each other and, and is with each other in prayer. And uh, if you're not in a life group, uh, Horizons has a care and prayer team that is there to pray with you and for you whenever you need. And there's a staff and other church leaders that want to pray with you when you're going through something, whether it be good or bad. One of the things James is trying to get across here is dealing with illness alone isn't as good as dealing with it with community. Uh, again, at the front, I said 70% of us feel alone. Uh, Liz Bohannon shared at the Global Leadership Summit this, uh, she said 70% of us feel alone. She said, but that means you're not alone in feeling alone. Your loneliness is not an accusation of your unworthiness. So often we think we're lonely because of some flaw of our own. She says, it's, your loneliness is simply a signal. It's your mind and your body telling you that you have a good and natural and normal and unmet need for connection. To finish this letter then with a call to prayer uh, is maybe unexpected, but it's really uh, appropriate. Prayer has to surround everything that we do, whether it's happy or sad, whether there's suffering or whether it's a time of cheer. And the idea that we have to bring to the front here is that prayer is a place where heaven and earth overlap. N.T. Wright, commenting on this passage, says this, that is, after all, what Christian prayer, and for that matter, Christian sacraments are all about. Prayer isn't just me calling out to a dark, distant, unknown God. It means what it means, and it does what it does, because as James said last week in chapter four, God draws near to those who draw near to him. Heaven and earth meet, when someone calls on the name of the Lord. And prayer, of course, is not just a task for pastors or church leaders. It's, a, it's something every one of us Christians can do. Every Christian can pray for one another, for the sick, for sinners, for the nation, and the world. Again, N.T. Wright says, if all of us were to 
to determine and devote half an hour every day to this task, the effect could be incalculable. When we pray, a bit of heaven arrives on earth. Uh, this here is a, is a guitar string. Uh, you can do a lot of things with it. You can, uh, if it's 115 degrees in Lincoln, you can spin it around like this and create a little fan. You can, uh, you can tie some things together. But really uh, what it was designed for is it was designed to be connected. Uh, this is a guitar. A guitar on its own, maybe you noticed this one on stage while the band was up here. This guitar has no strings. And a guitar with no strings has no potential, really, right? A guitar with no strings has no potential, as really does this string. Uh, but if you take this string and you connect it to the head of the guitar, and you connect it to the body of the guitar, because you can't just do one, right? If the string was just connected to the head, again, it's still no good. If the string was just connected to the body, again, it's not gonna accomplish what it's made to accomplish. But if you take this string and you connect it to the head and to the body, and then you turn these little things up here, uh, which tune it, and they stretch that string, it starts to have potential. Uh, I've invited Josh, who's on our worship team. Uh, Josh is a 10th grader here in town. I've invited Josh up here. Uh, Josh, will you play us just one string on your guitar to uh, show us the potential of what it can do? And so that's what happens when a string is connected to the head and to the body and when it's stretched. Uh, and when one string joins other strings... When one string joins other strings, you get what's called a chord or a harmony. And so, uh, Josh, will you play us a chord? Uh, that's a chord. Well, uh, once all the strings are connected and all of them are in harmony, just like that, a great noise, we can do some pretty amazing things. So will you just do something fun for us, Josh? Y'all give it up for Josh. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, that is just a snapshot of how we can live into our potential, right? If we're connected to Jesus and we're connected to the church so that Jesus can stretch us and grow us, uh, together we can make music that absolutely changes the world. I, I got to this point in my sermon, and I always get lunch with Pastor John as I'm getting ready for a sermon, and, and uh, he said, you need some illustrations to close this out. And then he just started rattling them off, and I was like, okay, this is great. I, like, he'll just write the sermon for you if you get enough lunches with him. Uh, so I wanted to close with a few examples. There's probably a ton of examples we could... Uh, go into, but a few examples who have, uh, of people who have done this with their lives. Uh, one of them is Sister Jessie. Uh, Sister Jessie is uh, the leader of one of our Project Hope homes, um, and she left, she grew up in the highest class in India, 
Uh, her family was wealthy, and she grew up in that uh, class system in India. But she chose, as she became a young adult, she chose to leave it. She chose to live among the poor and uh, open an orphanage. Uh, this here is Sister Jessie a little more recently with a girl named Abishi. Uh, years ago, Abishi came to the orphanage. Um, her mother had special needs. And when Abishi was born, uh, her, her father left um, and was never in the picture. And uh, Sister Jessie uh, met Abishi through Abishi's grandfather, who was working for Sister Jessie, and she ended up living there. And Sister Jessie said she had a, a, a lot of challenges early on um, living at the home. Uh, one of the interesting things that Sister Jessie has said before is, Early on in starting the orphanage, Sister Jessie lost her own mom. Her own mom passed away, and she said it was, a, it was a very lonely time. It was a very lonely time. She said, but it was around that same time that I met Julie. And Julie, uh, her husband was on staff here at Horizons at the time, and she connected us with Sister Jessie. And, and Sister Jessie says, it's amazing how God worked. I never felt alone. When my mom died, I, I felt like God provided me this new connection through my friendship and Julie and through my connection with Horizons. Um, and through that connection, uh, you all have given and, and Abishi's school fees have been uh, supported, uh, her uniforms, all her education expenses are taken care of by you. And Sister Jessie today uh, thanks God for how Abishi has grown and developed. Uh, she's in 10th grade today. Uh, and their plan is for her to go on to nursing school soon. Um, one of my favorite things about Sister Jessie, and it's kind of in a weird way, is one time I was sitting with Sister Jessie and Julie and a handful of people, and Julie was talking about flying over to India. And she said on this flight to India, she specifically booked an aisle seat because it's a long international flight, and, and she wanted to be able to get up and move. She was nervous for a long international flight. And so she specifically booked an aisle seat, but as soon as she got on the plane, the people in the middle seats were like kind of nervous about having middle seats, and they were talking about it, and she kind of tried to ignore it, but uh, eventually she got to the point where she's like, would you like my aisle seat, and I'll take your middle seat. And as the plane was taking off, the same person uh, started to get sick, and, and they ended up throwing up, and it ended up getting on Julie at a time she couldn't get out of the plane. Uh, she couldn't get out of the row, and so now she's sitting in a middle seat, and she has throw up on her for a long international flight. And at this point, at this point in the story, Sister Jessie just started laughing and howling. She would have thought this was the funniest thing. And she said, she said uh, you should have never given up the aisle seat. And I thought, I, I sat and thought, and I was like, it's so interesting, because Sister Jessie has given up the aisle seat with her life, Right? Like, she's given up the aisle seat over and over again. But I love that story because it's so easy for me to think, make things about myself and to think Sister Jessie is somewhere that I can't even close to achieve, but it just reminds me, uh, she probably would have given up the aisle seat in a heartbeat, but it reminds me that at least she laughed at that story. At least she's a little bit like me, and I have a potential to live like that, right? Uh, I also think, uh, when I think of this, I, I think of the person who decided to donate solar to Horizons. Instead of building their own kingdom, their own wealth, they generously gave to our ministry 
the gift to solar panels that will help reduce electrical bills and uh, allow us to put more money directly to ministry. Um, but they're, and, and they don't even go here. They, like, there's nothing, this isn't about themselves. This is just something they wanted to do. Uh, and their, their bigger hope is probably that together uh, horizons with other churches and other individuals and other businesses that uh, also make an effort to lower our negative impact on the world, uh, together we might be able to make a difference. Climate change is already disproportionately impacting the poor the most. Together we might be able to change that. Uh, I also think of so many of you that are part of the backpacks that we give to schools throughout the school year or the free little pantry projects. Um, so often we package uh, bags to deliver to free little pantries and many of you help package that and then you deliver them. A lot of times you go way out of your way to deliver uh, food so that we can make sure as many free little pantries in Lincoln are stocked as possible. And many of you continue that work outside of the times that uh, we do it together as a church. I also think of Linda Miles. Uh, Linda was, was a nurse and uh, she was a prayer team leader at Horizons for a lot of years. Um, a, couple of, a couple years back, she got cancer and uh, slowly her role changed uh, she had been the nurse caring for people. She had been the prayer team leader praying for people. But now other nurses were caring for her. And the prayer team that she had led was praying for her. And she'd send frequent prayer requests to that team. And then she'd write back after she had sent those prayer requests and she'd say, thank you for all your prayers. They have been felt. And all these people, and many more, are inspired by Jesus. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. James knew that his brother Jesus had started something. He started a kingdom that looked nothing like kingdoms had ever looked before. It was upside down. And James wanted to remind everyone that your faith in Jesus is shown in your actions of living like Jesus. It's not about getting yourself ahead anymore. That's not who his brother was. That's not how this new kingdom was going to look. And in this kingdom, you're certainly still going to have challenges. But you don't have to walk through them alone. James would encourage us to stay connected to God. Stay connected to each other. And if we do that, we can create a beautiful harmony that will bring heaven to earth. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, countless examples of people who live like you, of people who do this with their lives. Uh, we admit that it's hard. 
So often uh, we're tempted to make uh, the kingdom all about ourselves, to acquire more for ourselves, to, to chase after those things. But uh, this morning we just remind ourselves that that's not the kingdom you came to start. And we listen to James's words uh, where he reminds us of that, and we just uh, commit ourselves to trying a little bit more. We're not going to be perfect, uh, but we want to follow you. Uh, help us to stay connected to you at times that we're tempted to feel alone. Help us to stay connected to you and help us to stay connected to each other. Uh, we're so thankful for this community to do that alongside. Amen.